And this is God's word to us. 1 Samuel 1 verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife. And the Lord remembered her. 
And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull and ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. We ask that God would add his blessing to this reading from his word. Let's again join together in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to these ancient words, we ask your spirit to speak through them and to breathe upon them. Help us to learn lessons for our lives, for your kingdom, for this world. May we say with Samuel, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Amen. I can't imagine that anyone here has missed out at some point in your life in a, in a game of Monopoly. You've all played Monopoly, I'm sure, and uh, you will know what I mean then when you land on the chance square and you take your card and <clears throat> you hear the, the good news that your aunt has died and she's left you a hundred pounds. I want you to imagine with me, if you can, your aunt has died. Your rich aunt has died. And she's left you not a hundred pounds, but 50,000 pounds. Sounds a bit like the chase. It's not a hundred pounds, 50. But your aunt has died and she's left you 50,000 pounds. The solicitor has confirmed this to you. And he says, the check's in the post. It will be with you in the next few days. Now think about this. If your house is like my house, most times when the letterbox rattles, it's bills or junk mail. So you're never tripping over your feet to rush to see what the postman has left you on this occasion. But surely, if you had been told 50,000 pounds is coming to you. It's guaranteed. It's only a matter of time. (coughs) Would that sense of expectation not surely 
change your attitude to the letterboxes rattle. Wouldn't matter what you're doing. You rush to see what the postman has left. Every new delivery prompts you to ask the question, is this the day? And if you can picture that in your mind, you have a a little sense of what was happening in the minds of God's people in the Old Testament times. They had been given a promise, a promise to which they held dearly. Genesis 3.15, it's technically called the Proto-Evangelion, the first announcement of the gospel. God had promised a child would be born to a woman and this child would be the deliverer for his people. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The world was in a mess because of sin. Satan held sway. But one day, a baby would be born who would transform everything. The one who would provide the double cure for sin, cleansing us from its guilt and its power. And the darker and the more sinful the days, the greater, the more urgent the longing would be for the child of promise to come. This deliverer that God had foretold. With every new birth, there was this sense of expectation. Is this the child? I said earlier over these next months, we're going to study together the book of Samuel, God willing, in our evening service. And the big story of this book is of the search of the people for their deliverer. The one who would come and who would transform their circumstances. The one who would bring help and hope into their desperation. They longed for a deliverer and particularly they really wanted a king. Now their major problem was not that they lacked a king. But it was their failure and refusal to submit to the king they already had. The Lord, God was their king. He was to rule over their nation. But they rejected his rule and that will be a consideration we'll come back to on another day. And here's a spoiler alert. This great story of Samuel, this book ends with the people getting what they desire. They get this king, his name is David. We discover that he's a man after God's own heart. But ultimately he turns out to be a failure, a mess, just as corrupt as the rest of them, perhaps even much more so. And he leaves the people with this question and they ask themselves, surely there has to be something better than this. God has to have a better plan than this. And we know there is. God has promised that the one who comes, his deliverer, at the right time will be the one to deal forever with the sin of the world. 
As James Montgomery's hymn, Hail to the Lord's Anointed, says, He is great David's greater son. So that's the, the sort of background to our story. The people longing for their king, longing for their deliverer, the one who would govern them wisely and well. Now, you should understand that the book of Samuel records events from 3,000 years ago. And you might wonder, well, what relevance does a 3,000-year-old book have for living today in, in Portadown 2019? And the, the answer is given as we note the context into which these words were written. The context, the backdrop against which this story is set. And it comes at a time when Israel was governed by people who were known as judges. Individuals, men, women, raised up by God, empowered by him for a time of crisis in the nation of Israel. And I'm sure many of you are very familiar with the book of Judges. And if you are, then you realize that that was a very Dark, dark time spiritually for God's people. There was the whole seal engaging in every sin imaginable and particularly sexual sin. And appalling as our society's slide is into the moral morass. It's tame, it's prudish when you compare it with the events that were unfolding in the book of Judges. It's not the type of book you read to children at bedtime. The writer of the book of Judges hammers home to us this great point. that What he deems to be the sole reason for the spiritual and moral decline of the nation. Judges 17.6 In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 18.1, in those days there was no king in Israel. Judges 19.1, in those days there was no king in Israel. Judges 21.25, the concluding verse of the book, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You got it? What's the problem? There's, there's no leadership in the nation. Everyone just does as they see fit. Could that be relevant to people in Portadown 2019? Moral bankruptcy in the nation. And as we'll see in a little while, there was spiritual bankruptcy in the church. In a few chapters, we'll learn about the conduct of the sons of Eli who oversaw uh, the practice of worship in the uh, sanctuary center at Shiloh. And God's patience was nearing its limit. The time was coming for judgment. He would no longer tolerate the evil practiced and promoted by these wicked men, Hophni and Phinehas. And they would face fierce, fierce judgment. Hundreds of years after the writing of 1 Samuel, we read in the prophet Jeremiah how God speaks to the people in, in leadership in, in Zedekiah's day. And in Jeremiah 7, 12, we read, God says, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil 
of my people Israel. God would judge in Shiloh. He would uh, no longer tolerate their spiritual bankruptcy. Shiloh became a visual aid to the people of God's judgment upon their sin. So there's moral bankruptcy in the nation. there's, There's spiritual bankruptcy in the church. God is going to act decisively, which brings us to our text for this evening. 1 Samuel 1, 1. There was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. Seems like a bit of an anticlimax, doesn't it? National even global sin crisis. And in the search for the solution to the troubles of the world, God brings us to the goings-on in this little dysfunctional family from a village in the hills north of Jerusalem. We've got to see, but there's a point that we need to grasp. Something that stitches the whole of the Bible together. As prophesied in Genesis 3.15, the first glimmers of hope for Israel would come with a baby's cry. Now you may have noticed if you've been uh, flicking between Judges and and Samuel that there's a little book of Ruth that interrupts the flow a little bit. And there it just takes us to a story of a rural family and all their struggles. And that family story concludes with a message of hope because a baby is born. The birth of a baby boy brings hope. That's what the Bible teaches us from start to finish. We read at the beginning of our time together, Genesis 4 and 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Hope for the world is heard in a baby's cry. So let's dive into uh, this First chapter of Samuel and three very simple points for us this evening. To see Hannah's problem, Hannah's prayer, and Hannah's promise. Hannah's problem, Hannah's prayer, Hannah's promise. Firstly, Hannah's problem. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Common practice in the ancient world and still common practice in many parts of the world today. Don't know whether you know this, but I have an African father. He, he, he now goes by the name of Isaiah 118. He calls me Semakula. If you want to know what that is, you can ask me later. But uh, he calls me his adopted child. And when Isaiah 118 first became a believer, he had six wives. But when he got saved, he gave up five, ensuring that they were uh, cared for appropriately. And he became faithful to to one, the youngest. And that remains the common practice in many parts of the world, this practice of polygamy. But that was never God's intention. And where we read of polygamy within the scriptures, we always see dysfunction. We always see problems amassed. God's intention for marriage is clear. It's one man and one woman for life. Hannah had a problem. She's in a polygamous marriage, but that's not her problem. 
Her problem was that she had no children. She was barren and the lack of children is a heavy burden to bear. It still is for many couples today. Children were vital in that age. It was an agrarian culture, so if you had lots of family members, you had lots of help at harvest time. Many hands make light work. The bigger the family, the more prosperous you would be in business. And children provided long-term security for old age. The more children you had, the better care you would anticipate in your latter years. Not sure why that still applies today, but that was how it was. And big families were important for the welfare of a nation. If Israel was to be strong, if they were to be able to resist the attacks of their enemies, they needed lots of men for their army. Lots of, of men of fighting age. They needed to breed soldiers. I don't know whether you still read a national paper, but over the last few days, all the national papers have uh, been reporting on how uh, last year was the lowest birth rate in England and Wales since records began in 1938. People are no longer having children. And that's a common trend across the world. Indeed, in some cultures, it's worryingly so. Indeed, Russia has had such a decrease in its population that the government have decided to award a medal. It's called the Order of Parental Glory. If you have seven or more children, you get invited to come to the Kremlin and the president himself will give you the medal. They need children to stop the decline of the nation. Children are important. Now, they are not the most important thing in a believer's life, but they are important. And Hannah had none. And it weighed heavily upon her. It was her problem. And I'm sure Hannah condemned herself a great deal, but that, but that was only part of it. We, we see to make matters worse in, in verse 6 that her other wife in the home, Penina, provoked her hurt her with her words. Verse 6 says, Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah's name means favored, favored of God. And you can imagine all Peninnah needed to do was to greet her each morning and that was enough to rub salt into the wounds. Good morning, favored. Because that was not how Hannah felt. But not only did we have Peninnah's attacks, we also had Elkanah's best efforts. Men are not good, ladies, forgive us. He was clumsy. He had good intentions. But, you know, it just doesn't sound right. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Hannah's heart was broken. And we can learn lessons from this tragic situation. Three quick lessons. One is that Hannah's problem had its source in God's purposes. Hannah's problem had its source in God's purposes. Twice we read, verses 5 and 6, the Lord had closed her womb. And whatever the physical problems that caused Hannah to remain childless, The scriptures make it clear it was God's doing. God is sovereign in our suffering. God is sovereign in our suffering. 
At the end of the book of Job, you know the, 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 the context of Job. Job 42, 11. The very end of this story, the last chapter, we read these words. Then came to Job all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. All the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Yes, as in Job's life, God at times uses the instrumentality of Satan for his purposes. We thought about that a little bit this morning as God used Satan to tempt Judas. But it is God who is the one who determines our suffering. The what and the where that we have to face in life is God's purposes for us. And what is God's purpose in this trial? Well, it's at least in part that we might see his possibilities. Hannah's problem is the starting point for God's possibilities. And it often is such a difficult situation that God works for his glory. And if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that those who were declared to be barren were often the chosen instruments that God set apart to raise up those who would play significant parts in his history of redemption. So Sarah, in her 90s, no child gives birth to Isaac. Rebecca, so long barren, gives birth to Jacob. Rachel gives birth to Joseph. Elizabeth gives birth to John the baptizer. Barren women become part of the story of God's work of redemption. And we must learn the lesson that there is no hopelessness, no helplessness, too dire, too drastic to hinder God from working. Indeed, those circumstances where we are at the very end of ourselves provide the the very best canvases on which for God to paint his masterpieces. For all the glory goes to him because we are utterly bereft. And so we will see out of the the dust of Hannah's barrenness will come rich benefit for the people of Israel. Because our problems create possibilities for God. And we see that Hannah's problem then, thirdly, is the stimulation for God's petitioning. Hannah's distress drives her to God's throne of grace. Which really then is my second point. Hannah's problem, Hannah's prayer. Verses 12 to 15. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. These were dark days in the spiritual life of Israel. It was so uncommon that anybody would earnestly engage in passionate prayer before God that Eli's automatic assumption is that this woman must be drunk. And he speaks words of condemnation against her. And as a little side point, do we see this so often? Something is... Unmasked about the spiritual malaise of of Eli's heart. He is tolerating the open and ridiculous sin of his two sons. but, But here he incorrectly condemns the drunkenness of Hannah. 
He is, as Jesus pointed out later to the Pharisees, straining out gnats and swallowing camels. He mistakenly assumes that Hannah is drunk, and we know that's not the only time in Scripture that mistake is made. But on the day of Pentecost, as the apostles made clear the wonders of God following the anointing of the Holy Spirit, Peter had to stand up and defend them, Acts Acts 2 verse 15, saying, For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day. So what do you think when you meet someone who's utterly sold out to Jesus Christ? What do you think when you confront someone whose life is his 100%? If you observe that unusual phenomenon, when you meet someone who is so committed to Christ, you often might find yourself wanting to say that, I think they're a bit off their head. They've lost the plot. That's certainly Eli's assessment of Hannah's prayer. But it's heartfelt. It's an intercession that expresses her deep sense of need. And her prayer is also an understanding of God's sovereignty in these matters and in all matters because the God she knows who has closed her womb is also the God who can open her womb and give her the child that she longed for. Often the reason people uh, do not pray is they really don't believe God will do this work. They don't believe he's big enough, powerful enough to answer their prayer. And people live self-reliant, not God-reliant lives. But Hannah is driven by her problem, moved by her need to seek God and throw herself on his mercy. And note the unusual outcome of the prayer. Second half of verse 18 says, Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And that's a little bit strange because she's not pregnant. She's not nursing a baby. But she has unburdened her heart before God and now she feels light in her spirit. Already she has known blessing even before she has the physical answer to the prayer. That's what God's word promises us. I hope you know well the the words of Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Where Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the outcome? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace, it it finds its source in God. It's, It's grasped by us as we unburden our hearts before him in prayer. As we'll sing a little while, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pains we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And finally, Hannah's promise. Verse 11, she had vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and will not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And she's a woman of her word, verse 26 and following. She said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petitions that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. 
and she worshipped the Lord there. Hannah fulfills the vow that she had taken. Now, if someone arrives down at the church hall tomorrow and hands a three-year-old to Cecil and says, I'm leaving this child for you to work for God's kingdom in this place. We are phoning social services. It's not easy for us to think our way into this situation. But the challenge to us is to see what sacrifice we might make for the honor of God's name, for the extension of God's kingdom. For Hannah, all the personal benefits that might have belonged to her, the additional help of Samuel on the farm at home to bring in the crops, the additional care that she might receive from Samuel in later life as she grows old, that was all lost to her. She gave it up to God. She given. She was given the boy by God, and she knows ultimately that every good gift that God gives to us, we must return to him for his greater purposes. And that's the challenge to every parent, to do as Hannah has done. Parents must give their children to the Lord. Everything we receive from God, we must give back to him. We must give our children to the Lord as parents. They are not our children. They are his. And yes, we want them to do well at school. We want them to have sporting success. We want them to know friendship and joy and happiness in life. But these are all meaningless if our children do not grow up to know, love, and serve Jesus Christ. If they do not gain from him the gift that only he can give, the gift of eternal life. So we give them to God that he might claim them as his own. So we see that the problem is solved, the prayer is answered, the promise is kept. Hope for Israel's immediate future will be heard in the voice of a baby's cry. Samuel is born and we'll read of what he does in the nation, how he gives leadership, how he blesses the people. And hope For this world in every age is found in a baby's cry. God had promised the deliverer would come. He would come into our world born as a baby, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. To get us out of the mess of this world's sin. God would so love this world. He would love this world with with this measure that he would not withhold from us his son, but freely give give him to us. Not that we would perish. He came into this world that we might have through Jesus Christ, everlasting love. And that dearly loved child that God had given to us would on the cross cry out in the deepest, most anguished prayer. He would cry out and his tears would flow, but his prayer would be unanswered. His suffering would end in death. So that hope of deliverance would be ours. And as Hannah bursts into a great song of praise that God willing we'll see next Sunday. So we must be stirred by the self-sacrificial giving of Jesus Christ to worship our great Redeemer, our Deliverer. The baby's cry that gives us hope, not just for now, but forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the God who made us. 
and you've made us for yourself. And although we have got lost in sin, we have chosen pathways that would stray far from your purposes for us. You have sent us a redeemer, a rescuer, a deliverer. In the cry of the baby of Bethlehem, you have brought hope to this world. That all who believe in him would not perish but have life that lasts forever. Lord, there is no gift like the gift of your son. There is no hope like the hope that he offers. May we trust in him and may we realize that all we have is yours and all that we have must be made available to you. May we understand our hopelessness, our helplessness without you and go constantly to you in prayer, knowing that you will hear, you will answer, you will work in our world. And Father, as we watch our world in moral and spiritual bankruptcy, We pray that people would look to King Jesus, the only one who has the right to rule, the only one who can rule with justice and fairness, the only one whose offer is security forever. May we know him as king of our lives, and may he be king of our land. May he be glorified in this place. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.